Manufacturing Descent since 1996, this is Hell. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to our new Now Daily. This is Hell every Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, Monday through Thursday. You can hear us at thisishell.com at 10 every morning. And then on Friday, you can listen to the Patreon podcast live streaming at 10 in the morning as well at patreon.com slash thisishell. And on Patreon this week, Alex discussed surgery to his genitals, and we played an interview from our very first show of the last decade. And yes, it was about a U.S.-backed coup that the U.S. media was refusing to acknowledge as a coup. How times do change when the U.S. media isn't acknowledging another coup by the United States. But if you want to know what kind of surgery Alex had to his genitals. You can now see him from space, by the way. Uh, you have to go to our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash this is hell. Today on This Is Hell, capitalism is a hell of a thing, and it keeps getting more hellish, evolving into a more disturbing and unrecognizable monster after each and every one of its acts of destruction, coming back stronger every time with ever more seemingly unstoppable momentum, speeding toward us and crushing us under its massive weight without any concern as it continues to drive on, fueled by its continuing economic success, no matter the impact to the rest of us on our planet. Overthrowing capitalism seems like a daunting, even impossible task, but our guest today says overcoming capitalism is a very different thing and has great potential in today's era of precarity capitalism. In a few minutes, we'll talk to political and social theorist and educator Albina Asmanova, author of Capitalism on Edge, How Fighting Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia. We also have Rotten History, and I've got something to say about recriminalized weed here in Illinois. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, pretty excited about the new daily schedule, sir? I'm sure you are. Oh, yeah. Uh, also got child care for my kid five days a week, so I can work on the show a little bit more and spend a little less time with my family. Uh, pumped. <laughs> so on New Year's Day, recreational marijuana became legal here in Illinois. And to be honest with you, I want no part of it. I refuse to partake in Illinois' recreational marijuana. Of course, I will continue to partake in my own recreational marijuana, but I will not have anything to do with the latest immoral law governing weed. And for those of you who are not in Illinois, this matters to you because many states are now calling Illinois' law the model law for the rest of the United States. On New Year's Eve, prospective stoners stood freezing in lines that stretched for blocks outside weed dispensaries waiting for herb to become legal. And as they were shown on local news, the lines were filled with white people who apparently didn't know how to get pot otherwise and were more than happy to spend too much money on weed. Who knew there was such high demand and such little supply for white people, white people willing to spend 
Far too much money to get high. Were all these people simply waiting for marijuana to become legal? Were they sitting in their suburban basements thinking, wow, should be great to be getting high right now, but ganja is illegal, so I guess I'll have to wait until it's no longer a crime. Do they have some sort of moral code where they would never have even considered breaking any law ever, but once the legal system makes something no longer a crime, there's suddenly, magically, nothing wrong with it, nothing bad about it. Are there moral values and personal tastes guided by and dependent upon whether the police will jail them for their activities or not? In their world, is it bad only once it is a crime, and if it's not a crime, there's nothing wrong with it. Because that's a very disturbing worldview of justice as a weapon deployed against the public to enforce correct behavior. And that's not what justice is. Justice is simply the morally fair and right state of everything. As a person's character trait, it means that they're just, which is they treat everyone the same or how they would like to be treated themselves. An immoral law is not just. And if police are enforcing an unjust law, they're not working to support or defend justice. Were all those warnings uh, by the anti-devil weed conservatives correct that the moment marijuana became legal, we'd turn into a nation of slackers with productivity plummeting and all of a sudden the economy, economy will collapse as we all become hedonistic, lazy, bong-toking heathens who no longer want to work or go to school or raise kids or do anything? Will we have near-term societal collapse not due to climate change but due to the demon weed? Legal weed in Illinois means the state has just legitimate legitimized that dangerously addictive evil herb which they told us threatened capitalism, promoted communism, made men grow big boobs, gave everybody all sorts of cancers, rang the death knell for all our families, nay the very concept of family. And what about the children? The children, what kind of world will we leave for them when it is a place where it's perfectly fine and acceptable to smoke weed and get high all the freaking time? A high that leads to sexual promiscuity in the streets filled with criminal delinquency, ushering in the end of civilization as we all collapse into stone blobs unwilling to do anything, anything that is, but our inevitable pursuit of harder drugs as we will all controllably chase our desire for a higher high because marijuana is the ultimate gateway drug. Unless, of course, if what they told us was wrong, if all that was wrong, the marijuana was never dangerous or addictive or evil or communist or boob or cancer-causing or anti-family or anti-children, or that weed was ever a gateway drug uncontrollably and exclusively consumed by lazy criminal perverts, the state was trying to convince us that it wasn't the law that was immoral or the police acting upon that law in an unjust manner. But marijuana a plant somehow had obtained, had attained the human traits of being immoral and unjust. But now the state has erased all those fears and immorality from weed. Apparently all those stories from the government, from politicians, from law enforcement and the police, from our teachers and all our cultural institutions over decade after decade after decade after decade and for over a century were just that, stories, fictions, embellishments exaggerations, if not straight-up bold-faced lies. We were lied to by everyone, and those lies were enforced by the law, a law enforcing lies, lies that took people's lives from them, locking them away for long periods of time in a cement box with a door of iron bars that makes any period of time much longer. 
which makes you wonder what other lies are being enforced by the police and why did the law enforce lies about marijuana for so long? Who benefited from throwing disproportionately large numbers of people of color in jail? What other unjust laws are in place today that incarcerate some for the benefit of others and not for any concerns over morality? With dispensaries, as of now, few and far between, with prices that your dealer would never dare consider out of fear of losing business, with long lines of indecisive high ends slowly choosing between who knows what and hipster clerks indulging themselves and their customers and their verbose expertise, don't be too surprised if you end up missing your drug dealer, if not going right back to them to score weed in a more intimate, direct, speedy, convenient, and likely lower cost way. After all, your dealer now has to compete with those stores, and your dealer doesn't have any investors, so your dealer has more ability to affect their weed prices, and you can expect those rates to be more flexible. As those dispensary lines showed, there are tons of stoners in Illinois, and that means there's tons of weed being smoked in Illinois, even prior to recreational marijuana. These stoners were getting their weed from somewhere, and all of those somewheres haven't really suddenly hooked up with dispensaries yet. There's still tons of illegal weed out there. So what's going to happen to all those friendly local neighborhood drug dealers now that their clientele can go to the store instead of going to their dealer's house or the back of their car as they wait out front? What's your dealer going to do for work now that the government has taken their livelihood away from them and given those jobs to rich white capital investors and entrepreneurs? Sure, these investors are job creators, all right. They create jobs for other people so they can earn profits off other people's work while taking credit for it as a media-endorsed titan of industry. The difference between the dispensary and your old drug dealer who sold you weed illegally is that the dispensary is all about making money. Sure, so was your old dealer, but your old dealer was about making money and not getting arrested, not getting caught at making money selling weed illegally. The weed store doesn't have that kind of obstacle. They also don't have to worry about a lot of stuff that poor people had to worry about when they were dealers before the state and regulated market interfered and gave the industry to the wealthy while further criminalizing poverty. When you dealt with your dealer, you didn't have to bother with all the choices that are forced upon you in a dispensary. And if you thought it was bad waiting in line behind someone at a liquor store trying to decide which scratcher lottery ticket they want to buy. Just wait until you are behind a stoner trying to pick between 22 different strands of weed. Things will change for you too. You will have more access to pot while you used to depend upon an illegal distribution chain to get your bud to you. You will now have a more efficient mode of distribution unhindered by Johnny Law. Whenever you want, you can go to your nearest dispensary. For me, there's one about a half hour walk from where I am sitting right now and score whenever you want. But my dealer was different. They would actually bring weed to me. I didn't have to go to the weed store. However, I did have to be concerned about the vagaries of the illegal market, which meant supply never kept up with demand, leading to higher prices and sporadic access. Now that higher cost of getting high will be on display at your dispensary not through your dealer. In fact, your dealer's prices are likely to always be lower than any dispensary. My dealer has already dropped his prices. Why pay a dealer to obtain something illegally when you can purchase it without the worry of breaking the law? And if you're buying it illegally, you better be paying less money for it than taking the risk of getting busted 
then because you're taking the risk of getting busted. Now, in Illinois, the state is not allowing just anybody to grow, as some states do. You must be a medical marijuana card holder, and you still can only grow up to five plants for personal use only. That means the legal supply will not be able to keep up with the now very high legal demand. This has and may continue to lead to not only higher prices at dispensaries, but it will also slow any drop in the prices of your dealer. My dealer's prices didn't drop that much. That's right, the law in Illinois is constructed in a way to keep your dealer in business. With quarter ounces of flour reportedly going for 125 bucks and eighths for $70, you'll want to keep your dealer's number handy for a while. But Illinois' politicians didn't just decriminalize weed. They legalized it. They applied laws to it. Laws that restrict weed far more than a deadly drug that kills tens of thousands of people every year. Alcohol. Alcohol is the number three preventable cause of death in the United States, and no, marijuana isn't number one or two. Those would be tobacco and poor diet with a lack of exercise. Within the law governing alcohol, however, anyone can go to the store and buy a beer-making kit. You can then go home and brew your own beer, and nobody really cares other than your friends who, to be honest, are not as big a fans of of your beer as they claim to be. They're just being nice. Illinois' elected representatives legalized weed, slapped laws on marijuana, abused it into a system of permits and licenses and limits and zoning and taxation and oversight and corruption. They're even trying to restrict how much THC is in pot. And where there are laws, there are also always crimes, which means that legalization doesn't mean decriminalization, but recriminalization as new legalities are enacted. Now recreational marijuana's now recreational marijuana is legal and the pressure is on illegal dealers to lower their prices and keep up their supply, delivering weed with greater convenience while still working outside the law in order to continue to make a living by bringing lower cost pot to you, all while the very legal and not so surprisingly very white dispensaries rake in the profits, funneling them from the poor communities the money once supported now being funneled upward to their already wealthy investors away from communities in need who will still live outside the economy even as the economy continues to devour the alternative economies the community depends upon. Understand that in Illinois, recreational weed has been legalized and that means made palatable for the market and its taste for profits that takes money from the poor and gives it to the rich that legalize it, paper it with whiteness and place it under the, their control as marijuana's profits are redistributed to the wealthy who are legally stealing yet another way of survival from those who have been purposely pushed out of the regular economy by institutional racism weaponized in the always raging class war that is capitalism. Sure, with Illinois' new laws, I can be holding without getting busted, but I never get busted in the first place, so... Whatever. I mean, look, it sucked that anybody got busted for carrying small amounts of weed. And it's great that you can walk around with an ounce without getting shot or going to prison or even having to give up your bag. And it's awesome that I can go to a store, if necessary, to overpay for weed. And it's fantastic. I can smoke on my back porch. But again, I never got busted for that before either. So, yeah, I mean, that's all great. But Illinois politicians didn't stop there. What we have here in Illinois is the marketization, the commodification of marijuana. And that means that every evil of capitalism will now touch the no longer evil weed, at least according to the law. It means the commodification of weed 
which we are already seeing in vapes and waxes and edibles, delivering THC to you in any way but flour. Dispensaries across the state are reporting runs on flour. Everybody's out, but they all have every alternative you can imagine. And they're not all bad, but none are flour, the actual weed we wanted to no longer be criminalized. Even in states with lax growing laws, there are reports of dispensaries rarely having flour, and if they have any, variety is incredibly slim. Recreational marijuana in Illinois means the root of all evil will infect the beautiful flower with a corporate ergot, a scum of profits that will reach deep down, even polluting the life very life-giving soil, crushing the herb from the ground up and a lust for every penny each plant is worth as it further reinforces Wall Street's white supremacy and privilege and racial wealth inequality, all enforced by the law. They finally legalize it, and next time we should be careful what we wish for, because in legalizing it, they've covered it in whiteness and redistributed its profits from the poor to the rich, making life even more difficult for those who desperately depend on another economy that exists for those who are not permitted to participate in the regular economy. If only Peter Tosh had sang instead of legalize it what we really wanted, and that would have been decriminalize it, maybe none of this would have happened. But the government, the market, they're not going to allow you to decriminalize anything without attaching riders and laws and amendments and limits and parameters without controlling, taking over whatever it was that you wanted to decriminalize. Capitalism does not allow anything to be decriminalized. Instead of being decriminalized, it's legalized into whiteness. In Illinois, even when allowing recreational marijuana to be sold in dispensaries in possession of up to an, any ounce being allowed and smoking on your back porch or in your yard without fear of being arrested, even when all these wonderful things can now happen, at least here in Illinois, it remains this is hell. This is right around the time every week when we would give you this week's hangover cure, but things are changing here on This Is Hell as we are now on every weekday, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Savings Time here in Chicago. Monday through Thursday, you'll be able to hear us live at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Our weekly Patreon podcast will be at patreon.com slash thisishell every Friday at the same time, 10 in the morning, Chicago time. So the hangover cure will be announced at the end of our show on Thursdays to prepare you for your weekend. We're also moving This Is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood from Wednesday evenings to Friday nights between or at 6 p.m. Listen to the weekly Hangover Cure every Thursday and join us now every Friday evening for This Is Hell office hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is more a think and drink. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Oh, I got one more thing in there here. Dropped something I shouldn't have. We are no longer in an era of neoliberalism. No neoliberalism retrenched following the financial collapse of 2007 and 2008 which it played a significant role in causing. Now, as our guest this morning argues, we are in an era of precarity capitalism that's even worse for society than the neoliberalism that caused the crash. While we might not be in a position to overthrow capitalism, we might be able to overcome capitalism. Here to explain, political and social theorist and educator Albina Asmanava is author of Capitalism on Edge, How Fighting Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia. Albano, welcome to This Is Hell. 
Thank you, Chuck. Very thrilled to be on This Is Hell. It's great to have you on the show. You can follow Abana on Twitter at A-A-Z-M-A-N-O-V-A. That's A-Asmanova. You write, our times are bereft of great crises, revolutionary upheavals, and utopias. Yet never before have the conditions been so ripe for overcoming capitalism without the help of crisis, revolution, or utopia. Radical progressive change without a revolutionary break is possible, and the time is right for it. Why doesn't it need a revolution isn't capitalism's dependence on crises the dependence that you point out throughout your book as well as its deep roots in all of society are all of the world's political and economic processes processes so deep-seated that the only way of possibly unseating capitalism is something as revolutionary as revolution and if not revolution why isn't revolution enough Right, very well. Um, put me on the spot. Let's see. Uh, the revolution is not needed, you say, uh, quoting me. Um, well, I'm saying that it is the peculiarity of our historical time that the revolution is not in the cards. So I'm asking if this is not very likely to happen, do we have to give up? And I say, no, we can find resources for a radical change without the crutch, in fact, of a revolution, without the crutch of crisis, and without the crutch of utopia, even the, the wonderful socialist utopia. We do not need it in order to go in a different direction, that is the direction against capitalism. Because what what you know my main intuition here is that we live in a very strange historical time which has its uh, special kinks you know look around is capitalism in crisis hardly the western economies uh, 10 years after the big financial meltdown are back to solid growth uh, but many people feel frustrated they live in hell there is a renewed interest in socialism but the idea has lost much of its glory and glamour. It's not so attractive for many. It was discredited and it was badly discredited by the dictatorships in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. So uh, one could argue that the idea of socialism might be useful, but it might be also in the way of radical social change, exactly because it scares so many people away. Um, the prospects for a revolution, as I said, are nil, and yet the chances for a radical transformation are better than ever, indeed, I claim. So these are some of the remarkable contradictions of our times. But they need fresh analysis, unburdened by the convictions, the hopes, and the prejudices of the past. We tend to you know, imagine the typical discussion about these things. So uh, a, a chap who defends capitalism and, and, and one who defends socialism. Uh, how does the typical dialogue go? The body count of socialism the pro-capitalist raises. And then, and then the socialist says, well, how about the body count of capitalism? And then usually they settle on somewhere uh, a mixture of the two. Uh, but what I'm proposing is that we need to go beyond this narrow framework. We are not confined to the choice capitalism versus socialism. 
so over to you. <laughs> I, you're right that I was personally involved in the short life of autocratic socialism or the communist regime, as it <laughs> was often called, and helped make it shorter as I became involved with the dissident movements and student strikes that challenged it in my native mm. Bulgaria. But we did not rebel against communism, neither did we hunger after capitalism. Our discontent was imbued with a sense that the everyday reality we inhabited was somehow pathological as it deviated much too far from the ideals of humanism, fraternity, and decency the system purported to embody. Our requests did not seem radical. They were in line with the blueprint of communism as a fair and free uh, society. Why mm -hmm. is government, why are economic systems seemingly incapable of living up to their promises, whether they are the promises of socialism within Bulgaria and the Soviet bloc or mm -hmm. the promises of democracy here within the United States? Um, why are well, why economic systems incapable of delivering on on their promise? Um, I'm not sure that that's always the case. I wouldn't say so, but certainly the autocratic, you know, the dictatorships that called themselves communism or socialism in Eastern Europe, um, they hijacked the idea of communism and used it for nefarious ends. Capitalism more or less delivers what it promises, and this is um, prosperity. I'm not saying that's the only way to deliver prosperity, but capitalism does deliver on that prosperity. The problem is that the price that we're paying for that prosperity is, is, is way too high. Um, destruction basically of human life, of our communities and of our nature. Now the question is whether we are really ready to, to pay the price for what it takes in the creation of that prosperity. Do you think capitalists hijacked democracy to any degree? Hmm. I love that. Uh, that's a very uh, tricky uh, question about democracy. Um, yes, capitalism has made democracy into one of its mechanisms. Um, the political theorist um, George Dean uh, is, is, is speaking about democracy as a neoliberal fantasy. I also use uh, that, um, that approach. See, the, if you're looking at, at contemporary progressive forces, so they appeal, they say, let's fight populism by more democracy or by fighting inequality, uh, which is another way of, of, of fighting for economic democracy uh, through equality. Well, I think that these are the answers, uh, or the, the, the wrong answers to the right questions. Uh, simply they're past, these answers are past our historical time. So. What democracy is helping now achieve within our economic and social system is a very strong capital-labor alliance in support of more, more growth, more jobs, and redistribution. Now, we, you know, even the likes of Bill Gates are calling for more taxation and redistribution. Um, we, we, we hear voices both on the left and the right for redistribution, but in order to, to have uh, this redistribution, we have to grow the cake so that we can then redistribute it. And we're back to this inflated production and consumption um, and promises for prosperity for all. But democracy is, is giving voice to this strong capital labor alliance 
in favor of growth in jobs that has been wrecked the environment and not only the environment, it is wrecking human lives, our everyday existence, because of the uh, price to pay by being all the time in the rat race. Uh, so in, indeed, to answer a quick answer to your um, uh, terribly uncomfortable question, democracy is hijacked and put to the, you know, to the benefit of capitalism. You that is why we cannot count on more democracy to solve the, the, the problem. You write that the current state of yes. cap capitalist democracy contains a tangible potential for overcoming capitalism by subverting it. Mm -hmm. This is a different path of change compared with stabilizing it, as per calls coming from the political right, overthrowing it, as per appeals by the radical left, or reforming it to make it more humane, the ambition of the center left. Rather than reforming, stabilizing, or overthrowing, you support subverting capital, capitalist democracy. Why is subverting a better way to challenge capitalism, leading to a better outcome, than reforming, stabilizing, or overthrowing? Okay, uh, indeed. So what um, my approach to the matter was very um, well labeled by, by the political theorist um, Klaus Sofe as a radical subversive uh, pragmatism. I really like that label. I hope I can live up to it. So what is the difference between subverting it and overthrowing it? Well, before, uh, before clarifying that, I, I need to explain how I understand capitalism very briefly. And capitalism is not just about private property of the means of production. It is above everything, above, uh, above all, a uh, social system committed to the production of profits and preferably to the competitive production of profit. So any practices, any policies that go against the production of profit are radical in my analysis. Um, and conversely, any policies that might seem very radical in the old understanding of socialism, let's say nationalization of private property, but to the extent that these policies are then committed, are used in the pursuit of profit, let's say in competition with, with the likes of China and Russia and all kinds of autocratic um, capitalist uh, countries, um, they are not radical. They fortify capitalism rather than, um, rather than fight it. So I'm proposing that we go beyond the discussion of how much private property and how much inequality and focus on the real mechanism of capitalism, and this is the competitive production of profit. So uh, you also mentioned that despite fears and anticipations of the crisis of capitalism, no such crisis has taken place. What are commonly seen as its manifestations from the rise of populism to the upsurge of precarious employment and slacking of growth are rather the growing pains in a process of transforming capitalism from the neoliberal model to the precarity form. How is neoliberalism, how is neoliberalism different in its precarity form? Okay. Um yeah, I, I see capitalism as, as uh, having lived through four uh, stages. So we have the 19th century classical uh, um, entrepreneurial or liberal capitalism. Then uh, we went through the welfare state capitalism after the, the, the Second World War. The last two decades 
of um, the 20th century were marked by the infamous neoliberal capitalism. It had a few features that I discussed in the book, um, but I believe that around the turn of the century, it was replaced by a new form I, I describe as precarity capitalism. So while neoliberal capitalism was marked by a state that played it uh, a game of you know hands-off capitalism. So the state lets the market decide many things, but in the precarity capitalism, the state actively interferes in order to help those who already have a competitive advantage in the economy. Because the greatest um, policy commitment is, is not to jobs and growth, as during the welfare state, it's not towards, um, you know, um, a, a free market capitalism, but towards ensuring the national competitiveness on the globally integrated markets. So because national competitiveness becomes such a priority, then the state starts to handpick specific actors, already those who have an advantage in the global economy, to push them forward. Um, you know, to give them uh, tax breaks, uh, to give them special sweet deals. So it is a new relationship between public authority and the economic actors and businesses, because some are really helped by the state. Uh, another peculiar feature of precarity capitalism, in contrast to the previous forms, is See, under the, well, the, the, the neoliberal capitalism of the late 20th century, people are motivated by a thirst for all these opportunities that the global economy of IT and open markets was created. There was a lot of new exciting opportunities, so chasing opportunities, uh, having this uh, sexy capitalism around uh, Luc Boltanski, um, the political theory, French uh, philosopher, uh, has uh, spoken about this very sexy form of capitalism. In precarity capitalism, uh, or our contemporary form, um, things are different. People are motivated not so much by uh, this exciting, chasing exciting opportunities, but by fear. So fear is the widespread motivation for people to stay in the game. Um, and that fear is rooted uh, down to uh, the very basic dynamic of capitalism, the competitive pursuit of profit in the global economy, which has been um, intensified, and it plays out. This fear uh, creates a, a precarious existence for people that play out in many forms. Um, so precarity capitalism is a state when um, it, it, it did not give birth to a precarious class, but to a precarious multitude. So people across education, class, um, and employment um, are living in a precarious situation. For, for the young unemployed in Spain, you know, Spain uh, unemployment among the young is uh, above 20%. So their precarity, precarity is expressed in the incapacity to get a job, to enter the labor market. On the opposite side are those with well-paid jobs, great jobs, who cannot leave the labor market under this competitive pressure. So they would normally 
work much less, but out of fear and out of these competitive pressures, fear, fear of, of, of losing their income, fear of losing their job, they have to work longer lives and um, longer working days. So we are all connected uh, through these grievances of precarity, the rich, the poor, the not poorly educated, the well-educated, um, the winners of capitalism, as well as the losers of capitalism, they're all affected by this generalized precarity. This is my understanding of where we currently stand. Should then, because as you point out in your book, there seems to be a political focus here in the United States on inequality. Should the, mm. should the focus then be on precarity and not inequality? Are Democrats potentially missing an opportunity to challenge capitalist democracy, to make life better for all of us by not, not focusing on precarity and instead focusing on inequality? Um, indeed, I think we are missing an opportunity um, because the fight for inequality, as noble it is, um, is missing the mark. Let me let me expand on that. I know it sounds scandalous. Um, so, we live in a system where wealth or, or or the improvement of our economic circumstances is based on personal effort. If we are seriously criticizing inequality, that implies that we defend equality. So since, you know, since Aristotle and many political thinkers um, and economists, um, they have um, made the argument why um, what Aristotle called arithmetic equality or absolute equality among all is deeply unjust. So unless we have a sense of justifying equality, we cannot plausibly make a big argument about inequality uh, against inequality, but you know that's let's let's leave aside the philosophical argument. There is also a political argument that when we designate the rich as the class enemy, we are precluding the formation of very broad um, class, uh, alliance of forces that have a bone to pick with capitalism. So this anti-capitalist wave currently is so big that strategically we should not preclude it or, or narrow that alliance by um, resurrecting you know, the old-fashioned class struggle, especially in its most crude form um, in the tax the rich narrative. Okay, so we don't want we don't want to uh, have a sole. You write uh, that it's not important, or we shouldn't be having a sole focus on class. Why is it important to not have an exclusive focus on class? Because every time I see any discussion on social media about whatever the issue is of the day, somebody always says it all comes back to class. What happens to your? What do you believe happens to a political worldview when everything is boiled down to? Is is, if you will, simplified down to nothing but class? Um, it simply, it is the wrong historical time for that battle. Uh, of course, we could have um, a clash of historical forces around class. That avenue is being opened very actively right now. I simply believe that this is the wrong not the really radical solution to take, and um, because we have an opportunity to do more. 
So, first of all, in our particular historical moment, as I said, there is a, a, a very uh, strong alliance of capital and labor against the environment in favor of stabilizing capitalism, in favor of, of, of renewed growth and jobs and redistribution. So how to break that alliance and reconfigure these forces into a different direction, this is the big, moment, the big question of our time. How to break the class, the capital-labor alliance in favor of capitalism and subvert it, as I propose, into an anti-capitalist direction. For that, we need everybody who is experiencing the precarity as a problem of their lives to join forces. This is what a class struggle cannot deliver, this very broad alliance of forces that we need in order to um, subvert the capital labor alliance in favor of capitalism, to subvert it and turn it against capitalism. You write what these uh, different versions of the crisis of capitalism obscure in their hasty diagnoses is the transformation of the socio-political order and the emergence of forms of suffering and injustice for which the old lexicon of progressive politics, which saw injustice mainly as a matter of inequalities and exclusion, has no available concepts. Even worse, they yes. ignore the possibility for radical transformation without the crutch mm -hmm. of a crisis revolutionary utopia. Do we not conceive what that radical transformation will look like yet because we have yet to conceive, we've yet to wrap our minds around and understand the new forms of suffering and injustice that precarity capitalism has introduced? Uh, right. Yeah, this is a very important thing about looking at, at what's going on afresh. Um, the trouble is that precarity capitalism nurtures conservative instincts. So because all, our existence is so destabilized, people are clinging on to what they already know. Um, Erich Fromm, uh, the, 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 the German philosopher Erich Fromm, called that fear of freedom. In, in times of destabilization, we all become more conservative. And the left is affected by that conservative instinct. And I, I find that recourse to the old language of, of equality or fighting the injustice of inequality and democracy, it is this familiar language through which we confront new experiences of injustice. And those new experiences is what I describe in the book as precarity. Mind you, uh, this word until recently did not exist in the English language. There is precariousness, but probably in the past five years, it has gained um, a more mainstream existence. We, uh, it, it has been introduced in um, well, academic political language, we now speak about precarity. The fact that there is a new term indicates that there is this new phenomenon. And we should not have this conservative instinct to cling on to the familiar terms of inequality, but really recognize that the big troubles of our day have to do with the massive destabilization of everybody's life and fight that. This is where the momentum for a truly radical politics um, is contained because what is causing the precarity is capitalism's very logic, very dynamic, the competitive pursuit of profit.
So if we fight that, even if we fight it with very mundane policies, with um, things like uh, job sharing or um, universal basic income, um, these are not very glamorous policies, but because they strike at the competitive production of profit, they would have a radical effect in terms of systems changing effect. And that's the most uh, dangerous thing about uh, capitalism is its competitive pursuit of uh, profits. You, we were talking earlier about the idea of inequality and precarity. Is the term inequality in any way uh, a neoliberal term to obfuscate from capitalism's role in causing poverty? Yes, I, I would say so. Um, Inequality has become such a broadly accepted uh, remedy for fighting, um, you know, the, the, the great evils of capitalism that we should be uh, suspicious, um, uh, uh, suspicious of that. Um, so, of course, imagine a society. Okay, let me let, 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 let's imagine a society where all the workers own collectively their factories or the, the means of production. And everybody is paid the same. It's a completely equal society. And yet it is committed to the competitive pursuit of profit with other countries, with other uh, states. It would still be experiencing the precarity, the exploitation, the alienation that we associate with classical capitalism. So inequality is, is a form of injustice, but we should not be only fixated on it because if we are only fixated on inequality and exclusion as the big evils of our time, we fall into something I call the um, paradox of emancipation. So it is not only that we overlook the big picture or we forget to ask what is it that we want equality and inclusion within. But by asking for inclusion and equality within a certain model, we give additional value to that model, right? We romanticize it. So equality within prosperity, okay, but how about what is the price of that prosperity? Um, or uh, example in my book I give with, with um, um, women, with the feminists, uh, not only women, but the feminists who, who fought uh, to include women in the labor market um, and forgot to uh, note that uh, ra the rat race is not such a great uh, thing to be equal and uh, to, participate, to, to, to be equal within. Um, so this is, this is the danger of, of um, fixating on, on fighting inequality is this short-sightedness, what I call um, the paradox, or being trapped in the paradox of emancipation, while fighting one type of injustice to deepen another type of injustice. So this is what I hope the, the left uh, will find a way to escape. 
you write that public authority in this new format of capitalism actively allocates opportunities to individual economic actors by help, helping them mm. enhance their pre-existing advantage in the global economy. At the same time, it transfers risks to society or to weaker economic actors through a pub policy approach I named socially irresponsible rule. Stress the mm. logic of policy action that aims at and often achieves economic efficiency, but does so without regard for the impact on society. What happens when the economy of a nation is disconnected from its impact on society? What happens when what's good for the economy is not necessarily good for the vast majority of society? Yes, exactly. Um, so we are returning to economic growth. So the engine of capitalism is back to its normal functioning. Um, and yet uh, so many of us are feeling uh, you know, exhausted and exploited and, 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 and living uh, horrible lives. Um, I think it's important to distinguish um, responsive from responsible rule, because when we are now appealing for a more democracy, more radical democracy, um, democracy is about responsive rule. Rule responding to, to, to popular demands. Um, that's one thing. Accountable rule is another thing. So whether public authority is accountable to um, the population or to uh, whatever forces it needs to be accountable to. And socially responsible rule is a different type of of political, um, collective political existence when public authority all the time takes into account the impact on society. Um, there still seem to be persisting this neoliberal consensus that pursuing competitiveness in the global economy is going to deliver well-being for all. But this is coming at the price of more precarious jobs, of longer working lives. So this is the, the fallout of successfully pursuing um, competitiveness in the global economy. Just a couple more questions for you. You write, taxing the rich might not be a bad place to start. As to whether this would amount to saving capitalism or helping dig its grave, the answer is it can, mm -hmm. do, it can do both. Saving capitalism is the particular conjuncture of the early 21st century, is paradoxically a condition for its overcoming. This is the case because right. re rebooting the economic engine of capitalism by stabilizing production, employment, and in in income also creates the conditions for emancipatory political agency. So, do we need to save capitalism in order to overcome capitalism? Yes, that's that's a beautiful paradox of our times. Indeed, see, this destabilization, the massive precariousness, is nurturing conservative, even reactionary instincts. I mean, the outright. Also, the, look, look, during the, the biggest economic crisis, the populations re-elected the center-right um, leadership that got them into this crisis. So in order to fight these uh, conservative instincts, we need to stabilize. We need anti-precarity policies. Some of that um, consists in redistribution, but most importantly in stable working contracts, in disconnecting the income of people from their employment status. Uh, so indeed, paradoxically, we need to stabilize capitalism in order to create the conditions for this um, unleashing of 
political imagination. Um, an example would be the 68 and the 89 revolutions. As uh, the author of the Port Huron Statement of, of Students for Democratic Society of 68 wrote, we, at the beginning of the statement, we all, uh, I'm, I'm quoting by memory, we all lived in, in uh, relative affluence. Well, it is not so much the richness, but the st economic stability that allows people to think big politically. That is why I do not think that economic crisis against, you know, much of, of what uh, the um, orthodox left would, would claim, economic crisis is not the condition for political revolution. It is economic stability that, uh, in my analysis, is the precondition for thinking big politically, for venturing. The same happened with, with our revolution of um, 89, in which I was a participant. Uh, we all live in, in relative affluence, in fact, uh, at least in relative economic stability. And then we could venture in, for, in the search for uh, a different political and social system. So yes, we well, need to stabilize capitalism in order to create the, the economic conditions for its political overcoming. One last question for you. We've been speaking with Albena Asmanova. She is a political and social theorist and educator and author of Capitalism on Edge, How Fighting Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia. You can follow Albena on Twitter at A. Asmanova. One last question for you, Albena, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Why, if we... Okay. Why, if we fixed capitalism, why, if we fixed that system, why would we want to overcome a system that we just fixed? Mm -hmm. Why would we want to save ourselves from a system that we just fixed? Huh. Oh, wonderful. Um, okay. We, I'm saying that we need to fix capitalism as an engine of prosperity in order to overcome capitalism as a way of life. As a, as a social life. Because what is costing people, and to, 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 to reboot the engine of prosperity now, is um, lives that they no longer value. Now, Joseph Schumpeter, he wasn't a, a great adept, the, the Austrian economist who um, was also a professor of economics at Harvard. He was um, an adept of capitalism, and yet he observed that, you know, the educated classes which have the biggest political impact are, uh, uh, are learning to endorse a life uh, that the economic effort at the pursuit of profit is not actually delivering. It, it is counter. It is go, goes against that life that people uh, value. So uh, it seems to me that in our time, People uh, have come to hate the effort that is necessary to 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 uh, land them into the the prosperous uh, life that they um, they're hankering after. So I'm counting on this contradiction between the economic engine of prosperity and what it takes to uh, fuel it versus the lives that it is giving people in the course of pursuing that profit. 
Albina, I really appreciate you being on the show today. This is a fascinating book. I'm very honored to have you as our first guest in 2020. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Chuck. It's Take a care. pleasure. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell, and if you can prove us wrong, please email me, chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On January 10th, 1811, 209 years ago, this Friday, just east of the Mississippi River in what is now the state of Louisiana, uh-oh, I'm betting something racist is going to happen. Several hurriedly convened white militias, told you, violently suppressed the largest slave insurrection in U.S. history. And yes, there were plenty of slave insurrections, despite what white supremacists want you to believe and somebody named Kanye. Who knew white people wouldn't want to keep an accurate history of all the slave uprisings to overthrow white supremacy? It's almost as if white people wanted to erase the very idea that slaves rose up against their owners. Weird, huh? Some two to five hundred enslaved African-American men from area sugar plantations had marched for two days, burning down plantation houses and storehouses and destroying crops in the field. Sounds like fun. In putting down the uprising, the white militias managed to kill more than 40 escaped slaves in the battle itself and executed another 44 men afterward, mostly by decapitation. Because anything, does anything say white supremacy quite like mass decapitations? Yeesh. The severed heads of the enslaved men were displayed on pikes afterwards as a warning to others who might dare challenge white supremacy. And pikes. Does anything scream white supremacy more than pikes? If you're at an Antifa rally and you see Nazis show up with pikes, my advice to you is... Skedaddle. On January 11th, 532 years, uh, 532, on January 11th, 532, 1,488 years ago, this Saturday at the Hippodrome racetrack, not a racetrack of hippos, don't worry, uh, racetrack stadium in Constantinople, the city now known as Istanbul, fans of the opposing blue and green teams in the day's chariot races united in a massive spontaneous protest against Justinian ruler of the Eastern Roman Empire. Both teams hated Justinian. In response, Roman generals led imperial troops into the Hippodrome and began an indiscriminate slaughter of fans of both teams, of everybody in the audience. The violence quickly overflowed and spread throughout Constantinople, eventually resulting in the deaths of an estimated 30,000 people. So protests at a chariot race lead generals to send in the troops, and the violence spreads out from the stadium to the streets, killing tens of thousands. See what happens when you mix politics and sports? It's really bad. About half the city was burned or otherwise destroyed in what remains the bloodiest riot in its history. And I'm betting it's the bloodiest sports riot ever. At least I'm hoping it is because that's some rotten history. And this is hell. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesday's Live? This is hell streaming at 10 a.m. here on thisishell.com. Uh, we're talking about we're talking with Maggie Dickinson about her book, Feeding the Crisis, Care and Abandonment in America's Food Safety Net. And you're also going to be announcing the question from hell. I got a copy of the NRA magazine, and everybody will be very surprised as to find out 
are not so surprised as to find out who the advertisers are in the monthly NRA magazine. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Albina Asmanova for being on our show this morning. Again, her book is Capitalism on Edge. How Fighting a Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia. And I also want to thank, uh, let's see, uh, Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for helping us with this, with Rotten History. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.